HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we are just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. My guest today is Nandita Godbole. She's an Atlanta-based, Indian-born author. She came to the United States more than two decades ago to study. Nandita's books have reached more than 30 countries in digital and print form, and on any given day, she is either writing about food or cooking up something delicious in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the show, Nandita. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, so glad you're on the show and on the line calling in from Atlanta today, uh, probably a little bit warmer than where we are in Brooklyn, which is not at all warm. Yes. <laughs> it is a little bit warmer, but we can't wait for spring to come in. Yes. Well, same over here. Yeah. Um, so I've been having such a great time just learning about you. You're such a you're such a prolific writer and you you've done so much. You, you have so many books um, and your your voice is so unique and strong. Um, <clears throat> tell me. Let's start well, from the beginning, if that's OK. Tell me a little bit about um I know you were born in what was Bombay at the time in India. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, from what I read, I, it sounded like you were born uh, just as a war was starting over there as well. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, India had its own share of tussles with, with its neighbors um, after independence. So um, my mom tells us the story all the time that I was born in the middle of war and she kind of makes a, a joke about it that I had to come then. Hmm. But um, India and Pakistan were having uh, a tussle about borders and um, 
Bangladesh and um, what was um, then East Pakistan, and Bangladesh was fighting for its own independent space um, as a country. And um, India being stuck in the middle between Pakistan and what was then East Pakistan um, was in, was playing into, um, or rather, helping negotiate some of that that um, freedom struggle for Bangladesh because we were getting a lot of um, uh, refugees from Bangladesh, and uh, that was about the time that um, I was born about. Uh, a couple of days before war broke out between India and Pakistan. And my mom says that when she was in the hospital, um, they could hear sirens go off at all hours of the day. Um, there was blackouts. They had to put things on the windows to make sure um, uh, nobody could see in or the light from inside the buildings couldn't be seen out. So there was all that drama happening. So I came at a very interesting time. Um, what a terrifying for, experience for, for a new mother. Yeah, it was a it was a scary time. I mean, um, for for my mom too. But you know, I think she um, she had some people around her. Um, my dad was a police officer, and he was always called to duty whenever anything was going on in the country. So um, this was one of those times when she needed actually to have family around. But he was on duty and everybody, it became like a community affair where people just kind of took care of each other uh, of sorts. And so you relied on neighbors and friends. And that was pretty much our entire, um, my entire childhood was like that, where something would happen in the country and dad was called away. Mm -hmm. And we basically relied on the good graces and the protection and um, security of the people around us. Um, and that was, you know, that was just the way we we had to work that out. Yeah. Um, yeah so. What? How? How was food a part of your upbringing? What? What kind of role did it play in your family? Uh, I was thinking about this. We were always big foodies, but never. Um, it it never became um, one of those things that you focused on like specifically because everybody was either always talking about food or somebody was involved in food. My grandfather, when he was younger, um, used to work in the food industry. Um, when he got a little bit older, he started his own restaurant. And that's the kind of environment my mom grew up in where she would see her dad um, go to work at his restaurant or would, before he had that um would go and work in the food industry, and um, that's actually where she met my dad uh, at one at his restaurant. That's you know, so that they started their their life and their love story there. Um, oh, so it wasn't a, it was not an arranged marriage between your parents? No, 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 not at all, not at all. Wow. Um, it was a very much a um, a very romantic um, love story. They they ran away from home. They eloped. They didn't tell anybody and. You know, everybody was mad. Like you can, you can imagine the Bollywood side of it, but on the <laughs> other side, where everybody hates everybody, and like, you know, like they they eventually got along, but the whole it was very dramatic. And um, my parents got together more so because they came from they had the same values for what they wanted out of life and what they wanted out of family. And they really did want to take care of each other and have that, you know, that very simple, simple living, simple means kind of scenario. Uh, whereas what their parents, their individual parents had thought for them was different. So they disagreed there. Mm-hmm. But um, they had that kind of a marriage and uh, that that's where they started. But 
my my grandfather, the same grandfather who had a restaurant, he eventually he sold his restaurant, and then a few years after, he um, set up a a little store that sold uh, cookies and candy um, in one part of town. And he actually had named that that store after me, which was I, I can't believe that that's you know that he had thought that I would have something to do with the food industry, or that he wanted to name the store after me. <laughs> And I remember going there, being able to open any jar I wanted and actually just fishing in. And he would say, okay, well, which, which cookies do you want? And he would measure out a small portion and hand them. That's like Willy Wonka. Yeah. It it was just so bizarre that, you know, that's, that's the kind of legacy I have. And I never really took it seriously because it was such a positive relationship with that grandpa, grandfather. And he was always bringing new things into the house. He would come in and like come to visit and he would cook up something. And it was never like, oh my God, why is grandpa cooking in our house? He would just come, you know, come to visit and then put her around the kitchen and make something. Um, so was it was so, much of, yeah, it's so intrinsic <laughs> yeah. to your family. It's almost like you didn't notice. No. Yeah. And we didn't really pay too much attention to it because it was like, oh, you know, it's no big deal, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but to other people, it was a big deal because they were like, oh, you know, your grandfather makes this really cool stuff. And <laughs> we want next time he makes bring us some or we would have a lot of those food exchanges, which is a very common thing for the Indian culture to have uh, these, you know, food swaps or food exchanges that happen specifically at uh, at major holidays. And you would either go to somebody's house and you would take a plate of something that you've made at home for your festive, uh, for your observances. And you would go visit someone else, take that over to them. And then without returning with an empty plate or an empty container, they would actually load it up with whatever they made. So we get to taste all these things from everybody else's house. My my grandmother, my um, the same grandfather's wife. I mean, their their apartment was in a in a community that was filled with um, lots of different kinds of people. Uh, they worked for a uh, the same uh, they worked for the same business. So it was their colony, so to speak. It was the the complex where they lived, or it was like their neighborhood. And there were people from all sorts of a background there so we got to eat you know one of my my grandmother's best friends was from uh was a parsi woman and um she would invariably know when i was coming and she would say all right well you come over for lunch and i'm going to make you this and you know it was such a treat to just go visit all these other people who were not part of family but just assumed that you were i mean it was just assumed that you were welcomed at their house Right. So we had that kind of an upbringing and it just went from that to never really thinking about food being a business end or something that you wanted to really focus on. It was just part of the, the story of your life, like the music in the background. Sure. It was just so woven and, into the fabric of your life. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then you just kind of go from there and one thing leads to another. And before you know it, I am writing cookbooks. <laughs> I read this. I read an amazing piece that you wrote about your father um, where you said that the first time you cooked for him, you were 13 years old. Yeah. And yeah. he, you know, he told you that he loved this. I think it was soup that you had made, but you thought that he had been lying in that moment. Can you yeah, talk yeah, a little bit about yeah. the context of that story? Of course. Um, 
I was 13, and, you know, as all good Indian mothers do, um, they start teaching their, their young daughters to learn how to cook. And uh, one of the things that my mom had taught me until then was how to make uh, tea, but I couldn't really understand how to do it. And it was I was always getting it wrong or whatever. And um, it so happened that that um, one afternoon we found out that my brother, who had been studying, uh, was an engineering college in the town next door um, in Pune. He was sick, um, and he needed, like, 24-7 care and whatnot. So my mom was like, okay, I need to go take care of my brother. You're going to deal with the house. And I'm like, um, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and so she it, she gave me a crash course in the middle of the afternoon at 4 o'clock when I came home from school and said, I'm going to tell you how you, how you make dal and how you make um, uh, rice and how do you make uh, the the shak, which is the, the the vegetable that goes with it. And she had uh, already said to the day maid that she would make uh, the roti, which is uh, which is an essential part of of the meal. Because I was too young, I didn't really understand how to how to roll it and make it. So she, here she is giving me this crash course, and she made the meal that night and she took the bus and she traveled out of town she was off taking care of my brother so that night we had dinner and the next night I was supposed to figure out how to make this so basically we said all right I'm gonna have to make this and I tried to get everything together and you know as kids do you want to please your parents and want to do the best job you can so I made a very, you know, I took a lot of care and I made the dishes and I made a vegetable and I made a dal. And uh, the day maid helped make the rotis. And uh, we had the pressure cooker, so the rice was already done in the pressure cooker. And so I, I set up the table and everything, and I'm waiting on him to eat. So I'm actually serving him the food. And he goes, well, um, would you get me some pickle? And uh, pickle is, you know, the spicy preserves. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, maybe he just wants some. And my dad always loved pickles. And I said, is everything taste okay? And I had never, I had not tasted it. I didn't, I didn't think to taste it. And he said, oh, it's all great. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And it's wonderful. He cleaned his entire plate, not Aww. a single morsel left over, not a crumb left over. And like, you know, gave the, gave me the satisfied burp, like, oh, my gosh, I stuffed myself so well, so much. And then it was my turn to eat. So I start eating, and I realize that the salt is off in one, something else is not cooked right, something is, the flavors are all wrong. And I started crying. Oh. And I was like, Daddy, how did you eat this? And he goes, well, no worries, you made it. I know you were trying, so... You know, I, I eat it. It was all good. I'm sure you'll make something better another time. Like, he didn't even flinch in how much confidence he had in my ability. That's really sweet. And that was probably the the sweetest thing a, anybody has ever said to me. But it's, of course, you know, your dad. So you, you then want to go out and do the best you can for for a parent. And then I was so mortified, and I was like, okay, Daddy, you know, I'm not, not ever going to cook again. And he goes, no, 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 I'm sure you'll figure it out, but okay, let's do it this way. When Mommy comes back, you let her teach you, you know, how to make this because I like this or whatever. 
And the next day he had, he asked someone to do a lunch drop off for us. And like we started getting meals dropped off from friends because he didn't want to stress me out that I didn't know how to cook. Um, So it was kind of embarrassing for me to see that my dad didn't like had to get food from somewhere else. But at the same time, it was like when I got down to actually cooking, getting his approval became a big deal. Like, mm-hmm. no, is this fine? Is Are you sure? And that kind of continued pretty much through through all the time that I, I've cooked for him. And it got to a point one, one time, I think, when I was about 24, 25, and my mom was sick and uh, I was supposed to make, make the meals. And, you know, in India, you many, many kids stay with their parents until they get married, or at least the young girls do. Um, And I was living at home, and I cooked the meals, and he came to the table. He had his meal, and he said, oh, my God, why did you make mom work? You know, you should have cooked this, or maybe you should have. Did you cook it? Why did you make mom work? She was sick today. And I said, no, she didn't make it. I did. And at that minute, he was so surprised. He's like, I couldn't tell the difference between what you cook and what your mom makes. And it was like crossing over on from one side to another. <laughs> and that's like, you know, any good teacher wants that out of their children like or, or their student. Like your mom is your teacher or your, your parent is a teacher, teacher. But that confidence is what actually makes a person a better student. Mm-hmm. And I see that is such an important uh, clue into how to get someone to love what they're doing is acknowledging that their effort is worthwhile. Yeah. And it's not going wasted. And I've, I try to carry that, you know, that, that weight up with me every time I'm trying something new where I'm trying to teach someone something or share something that I know that it's the effort that's going to make them learn it or communicate that information across and me acknowledging the effort is the biggest gift I can give them. It doesn't matter what they read or what they don't read. Hmm. So that's where that goes. Yeah. Um, So you came to the U.S. to study, but I don't think it was food that you came to study. Mm -hmm. Um, So what, so what clicked with in you that you transitioned uh, and decided to start writing about food and creating cookbooks? Um, I got into food after 9-11, actually, because I, we were living in Michigan, and I lost my job that week, and um, it's something that very few people actually know, that we lived in a community that was uh, very stressed because of the, 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 the feeling of being attacked, and it, it was just a, such a terrible time for everybody. But if you didn't look like somebody local, um, somebody was watching you. Is and, that why you um, lost your I, job? Yeah, I, that's how I lost my, my one of my jobs. Yeah, um, that I lost it that week actually. And um, because no, you're not a white person. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and you know, you're you're so new, you're so young, you're so in the shock you don't really know and basically I was told you know we um I don't think you should be working here and like no excuses no explanations nothing and I was so surprised and actually during that week prior I had had a few run-ins with my supervisor because he kept 
he, he didn't like me to begin with, but he found that space in that week where, um, where creating that separation between them and somebody else became very defined. And I remember him sitting out, out when um, our general supervisor called and, you know, he was just snickering like, yeah, I knew I was going to be able to get you out of here. I never hmm. liked you. And, D- did you, know, you sue them? That feeling. I'm sorry? Did you sue them? No, I didn't. And uh, that was kind of silly of me. But, you know, again, you're so young and you, you don't know how to handle that, that you... And this is where a lot of people who come from another country who get fired for being who they are, um, they really don't know the system, and they're so scared in that moment. No, I'm sure. It's overwhelming. Yeah. Um, So there was a lot of that, and I I had to reevaluate what my place in this country was. was, There there were no jobs in Michigan for a long time, and uh, I I thought to myself, well, I got to do something. I can't just sit at home and wait for a job to show up because nobody is hiring and nobody's hiring a brown person, um, to put it very plainly. Yeah. So um, I started looking around and there's a lady that I um, that I met and, and talked to and I had seen catalogs from them before. Uh, and they were teaching cooking classes as part of the, the Ann Arbor uh, Community Recreation um, Program. And I said, well, I don't see Indian classes in here. Do you guys not ever get interested in Indian food? And the woman said to me, um, we've not had a good instructor. And I said, what does it take to be an instructor? And she says, well, if you're a native cook and, you know, we might test you off, but what do you think you want to do? And it was, I think, an honorarium of like maybe 50 bucks, I think, for the class to do a class. And I said, all right, let's, let's try this out. So we set up a couple classes, and they got filled so quickly, and it was such an interesting experience because when I got into that space, I realized that people were actually hungry for information about this other culture, and they were not sure what to do with this, you know, not white girl who spoke like them, Mm -hmm. but didn't look like them, who dressed differently but could like float between cultures very easy. Uh, and they were really confused. And I think that was a good thing because it really did challenge them. But it also challenged me to think about where my place was in, in the community. And I took it upon myself saying, all right, well, I understand that people don't know much about me or about my culture or they may have some misgivings or they may not understand it or whatever their preconceived ideas may be. And rather than fighting them and saying, you know, all the time, like, you know, you need to change your opinion, you need to change your views. How about I show them that we are kind of the same, except we just do things a little differently. And that kind of that whole time frame changed my perception on where food was as part of my life. And uh, eventually, uh, about a year and a half after that, we moved down to Atlanta. And um, I started, you know, I found another job as a landscape architect. I was studying to be, I had studied to be a landscape architect. I did that. And then we had the same scenario happen. Recession come through. And um, my husband works out of state and 
we settle him out of state and we come back. And my, my supervisor says, well, I don't think you can be a mom and an employee at oh. once. You leave your computer behind. And I said, how can you judge that? You don't, like, I don't, just as the way you're judging me, I can also say you don't have kids. You don't understand how that works. And it was such a shock that because I was different, people found it and I didn't speak up. I didn't yell at people or I didn't, I wasn't very forceful at, until then, that people found it very easy to kind of shove you aside and say, eh, you know what, you're dispensable. And my daughter was in the next room. She was seven years old, and she. I, I'm sitting there thinking, what message am I sending out to my kid, who is seeing on one one minute she seeing, sees this woman who is out there working. She's a professional, and then the next minute she's nobody. Hmm. And I sat in the room, and I I. You know, I spoke my mind very clearly, and they were like, no, you know what, we still like you. I said, no, it doesn't matter what you think about me. The fact that you chose this scenario for us to unfold in this manner means that you don't have any respect right. for, for the skills another person brings. And um, long story short, it got to a point where as I was getting home, I told myself that this was not going to be the end of my career journey. And food had been part of our life before that. I had been doing some catering on the side while I was still working. And I said, you know what? Food has never steered me wrong. I can run my own business. I don't need somebody else to validate my space in whatever sphere of, or profession I choose. I can do this. And as we came home in about an hour and a half or two hours after I was let go from my other from that job, I had a game plan in mind. It was depressing, mm. but I had a game plan. I was like, you know what? We're going to do this. We're going to get out of this, and we're going to be great at whatever we do. And you've got to be in a spot where your family understands what you're going through. And I, I, I have a really understanding spouse and I know he's hearing he's listening right now so hi honey but um, <laughs> um, you know it, it really matters um, when when you don't have the support versus when you do and having that where he said you know what you you pursue the passion that you find works for you so we within a week of that that day when I lost my job I had a TV crew in my house, and they were trying to, you know, help me promote my business and all that. And within like, a week? Yeah, within a week. <laughs> I had a dinner party. But that you were, you were always, you know, going to be unstoppable. <laughs> this... <laughs> I don't know about that, but that was a lot of luck. Um, it was a lot of luck. And I had a friend who, we were doing a dinner that, that, that Saturday, and one Saturday, and uh, she decided to invite one of her friends and she said it was a, it was one of those secret supper dinners and she said um i'm going to invite somebody and i was like okay is he going to pay for his his spot and she goes yeah yeah yeah. don't worry you know if he doesn't pay i'll cover him don't worry and she brings him over and i don't know anything about this guy and um at the end of the evening around 10 30 he's like what are you doing 7 30 in the morning on monday and i'm like um i'm dealing with my my seven-year-old kid <laughs> Um, I don't know. Are we supposed to do something? And he goes, yeah, um, well, will you be ready for us to 
will you be ready for us? And I, and I kept prodding. And about 10 minutes into that conversation, I realized he was bringing his crew to the house for a three-hour um, morning window where they were doing snippets of covering a, a, a new business in town. Wow. And I, I, I hadn't slept that entire weekend. We scrubbed the kitchen like crazy. But it was one of those things that, you know, if you put your mind to it and you really, really need one or two really good cheerleaders with you um, who understand your vision or understand what you want to do and see the merit in it, you can go far. So I'm always for, you know, go out there and do it and get it. Yeah. But, you know, if you don't get it, it's like, okay, I didn't, it, I, I tried. Yeah. But it's not like you didn't. So that was, that was awesome. And then it just kind of went from one to the next to the next to the next. And I think we've not stopped in the last four years. We've just had one too many books. So No, I don't think so. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sure. sponsor, and then we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Lisa Held, and I'm the host of The Farm Report here on HRN. The Farm Report is a show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Expect from the field insights as guests explore how producing fresh, delicious food relates to environmental and community sustainability, justice, and better health. You can find The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I've been talking with Nandita Godbole. She is a cookbook author and a food writer, and her business is called Curry Cravings. Welcome back. Hi, Nandita. Welcome back. Hi there. <laughs> um, so your your food stories are, they're so revealing, and they're poignant, and they're intimate, but sometimes they aren't really so much about food. 
as they are about your memories and your family mm-hmm. and where you came from. So can you just talk a little bit about how you're able to use food, I think, more as a mechanism um, in which you, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about yourself and, and where you come from and your memories? Of course. Um, what I, the way I think about this is when um, the first year that I came to the States, I was very lost. I had some understanding of the culture, but not never had lived here. Um, not a lot of contact relationships, and I kept looking for things that kind of gave me comfort and gave me a reminder that I could take care of myself and I could nourish myself, and I was relying on a lot of the skills that I had learned when I was still in India. And that's one of the reasons why I write about food the way I do, is that food plays such an important part in Defining who we are and whether we are able to feel, um, whether we are able to feel safe, we're able to feel loved, whether, um, and it fits in all of those spaces of our life. And as somebody who has been here, I think literally half my life uh, has been in this country away from family, it, you eat several times a day. Food is such an important soundtrack to what you're doing that it's necessary to acknowledge that without it, you're just, you know, you're just mechanically going through the day. Um, As we talked before, um, food had been part of my growing up, my childhood. I had some good memories with food, but I also had some not great memories with food. Um, We had family members who, um, who didn't really think of us as part of the family, and so we we saw a lot of, um, you know, we were the outsiders in some ways because my parents had a love marriage and uh, we had different food traditions. And so we always saw um, food through the lens, lens of acceptance. And that became part of who I am now because when I look at a dish, it's not just a dish. It has a story. It's like, why do I make this dish or why do I make this dish a particular way? And all of that develops and develops for me an appreciation of what I am eating or what I'm sharing with my family. Uh, I'm married to a man who is from a different subculture of India than myself. And we have, you know, we, we cook everything from things from my parents' uh, side, from my grandmother's side, from my maternal, paternal, uncle's aunts, all of that, and then there are some of his. And all of those things come together in the space on the construct of a house or a home. So you cannot really separate that, and it develops your identity. And when you're raising a family, you're, you're thinking about, what am I passing down to the next generation? What is my child or what is my family going to remember about this time? So you're making those conscious choices about food. And therefore, me going back into the roots of some of those stories helps me kind of tether it and then pulls it out and says, well, this is where I remember it beginning for me. And it could be different for somebody else, but this is where my journey for this particular dish or this story begins, and that's where it has come. So everything doesn't exist in in isolation. It's not like you're just eating something for the very first time. There's a whole context attached to it. And contextual understanding of food and recipes is so critical because we otherwise will 
we lose those connections. And one of my biggest um, missions of, of sorts for me is to make sure that whatever I write about has that context. Um, so if someone is making it, they understand why why that dish even exists in a set of recipes or in a, in a book. Why does that dish exist in that book for me? Or why should you make it? And if you make it, do you understand why it is made a particular way? So when you deviate from it or when you move or change that recipe, that choice is yours. Mm-hmm. And then you begin a new story of your own. And I'm open to that. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. But if I'm sharing something, I want to share it in its true sense that it's never just about the ingredients coming together. There's a story to it. Yeah. Um, that's a great answer. I read that uh, as you were researching your family, um, mm-hmm. thinking about origins and you know where recipes come from, you discovered that your grandmother was Jewish before mm-hmm. she converted to Hinduism mm-hmm. in, back in 1930. Um, what was that discovery like for you? How did it affect your, your identity and your curiosity and just thinking about, um, I guess, your food heritage in some ways? Um, it's a great question. It for us, it was not um, as a as a family. It was um, never really talked about until uh, about probably about a few weeks, actually, or maybe not a few weeks, about a month or so before my dad passed away. That's when we actually started talking about who we were in terms of our food history. Um, my because my grandmother had. Uh, converted. She and she lived in a community that was rather narrow-minded about people who converted. She basically hid out away any parts of her her personal life and her personal connections to um, to Judaism. And because of that, most most of the times her kitchen was either vegetarian. If she did cook any meat, it was in the absence of my grandfather. So nobody really talked about it. Um, and that continued to stay. And when my dad got, um, a dad got Parkinson's, I think, in about nine, he was diagnosed with that in 99. And in uh, 2016, I, I had been talking about trying to write a book of recipes with just family recipes. Um, and I started talking to him and I said, yeah, I know that grandma was Jewish, but what can you tell me about her? And that conversation just kind of opened a Pandora's box of, of questions for me. Half of them, he, we never got to have him answer. Um, uh, he, he passed away quite shortly after we started that conversation, but it did leave me questioning her space. And I could see that much of her hair, much of her background with Judaism, even when she got married and the things that she cooked and her religious background, she basically hid it away and never addressed it. And it made me sad for her in some ways, but it also made me understand that our society does impose a lot of um, constructs around what she, what is what is expected and what isn't expected out of families. Um, when they start a family or what their food culture or food traditions are going to be like. And many a times by ignoring something because it is not acceptable to others, you're basically shutting that portion of your life down. So when I took that, when, or rather when I saw that happen to her and I talked to my dad about what he felt in his memory of the foods that were very specifically 
associated with her um, in Israel, her, her, her upbringing, there were so few of them that I realized that she had done everything in her power to never bring that up because she didn't want her children to be confused mm. uh, about where they were. Yeah. And that made me really sad for her, sad for the scenario, but it also made me then appreciate what little pieces I had. And I could then say, all right, well, I know why dad didn't ever like shrimp because he never ate shrimp because <laughs> grandma never cooked shrimp because, you know, so you then have like five steps back into the because of why something happened. Right. So, um, you know, what I have now is then I have I value every single piece of history that I have gathered so much more because I know that by ignoring it, it is going to get buried at, at one point and I will never understand the true value of it uh, and why it shapes this. So it kind of flipped the switch in some ways where um, when I was writing uh, 10,000 Tongues, uh, it, it became like a lot of people told me, oh, these recipes are so simple and they're so classic, but you know, nobody talks about them. And I was like, yeah, we don't talk about these, these simple pieces of our lives because we're always focused on the highlights. And our life is never just about the highlights. There are spots in there which are neutral. There are low spots in there. And we have to acknowledge all of them so that when we grow and when we leave these traditions for our children, our children are able to also understand their roots and their connections and the significance of some very, very simple things. Um, so that you keep building on that legacy and you're not eroding it by ignoring it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. We, we have to wrap up, but I do want to ask one final question. Um, you know, you, you obviously shared with us your story of, about losing your job right after 9-11 and then again during the recession because of, you know, essentially being an immigrant and the color of your skin. Mm -hmm. Where do you think we are now in history? I mean, do you see us having progressed or not at all or, you know, reverted at this point? I mean, do you think those same scenarios would happen again? Should you, you know, have, should you be back in that same sort of corporate atmosphere? I think there is a chance that we've not really learned from our mistakes. Uh, I think there's a great, um, although there is a great strength in the awareness that is built around um, around some of these issues of, um, you know, whether it is immigration or whether it is being somebody different, um, all of that. There is a great amount of awareness, but it's not infiltrated enough where it where people like me, if I were to go back and deal with the same scenario, you would feel safe in actually raising a voice. Yeah. Um, so there is, there still is a lot of work to be done. We're in a better place, but we're not there yet. And I feel hopeful that if we continue to keep making room and accepting everybody as, as individuals who have something wonderful to contribute to our society, we will be a better society, but if we, we've got to actually support each other in doing so. And, um, you know, for lack of a better analogy, not build walls, and I'm not going to get into the politics of it, <laughs> but, uh, you know, not create those separations. I mean, I've seen this myself where me, us, and them, that whole, that whole attitude really creates unhappy communities. 
and happy scenarios. It's not a pleasant place to be in, and you do undergo a lot of stress. So how can we be a better country, a better people, um, acknowledging and accepting everyone for who they are and and helping each other grow is what we can hope to do, um, whether it is through food, whether it is through um, through the work that we put into our communities. It, that's just what we have to do. Um, and that's where what, that's where I think we need to be at. Yeah. But we're getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, Nandita, tell us, yes, tell us where we can keep in touch with you, find your books, find your writing. Of course. Um, Curry Cravings Kitchen is my um, catch-all for, uh, for a lot of my writing. Uh, and as you might have already seen, my writing is not just about food and books. It's also about a lot about families and, and identities and what happens at home. Um, and I do love sharing that because it gives a different perspective into the kitchen and it makes the kitchen actually make more sense. Um, the ebooks are, of course, on most platforms. Um, you can find them there. I um, don't offer print books off of um, any of the big, you know, internet retailers because it just doesn't work out. I'd rather sign them. So reach me uh, at Curry Cravings is Instagram um, and Twitter. I'm a better Instagrammer than Twitter person. Um, Facebook, look me up and you will find me. I think there's only one other person with my name, but you can't really go wrong. So um, <laughs> if, if you find me, if you find look up Curry Cravings, it, um, it's rather easy to point and I look forward to hearing from people who heard this podcast and uh, staying in touch and tell me what I can do. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today. And of course. Thank you everyone for listening to Food Without Borders. Check us out next week, Wednesday at 6 p.m. ET and find us and subscribe on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.